Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to SUP FM. My name's Simon, and I was delighted to chat with this week's guest, who completed an incredible journey when she paddled from Land's End to John O'Groats, and on the way achieved three world records. Anyone who's read her book, Ignore the Fear, will know that I'm talking about Fiona Quinn, who didn't make it easy for herself because she did it all on an inflatable sup, and apart from the Caledonian Canal, did it all on the ocean, including crossing the Irish Sea twice. But the most remarkable thing about Fiona is she did it all despite suffering from a chronic fear of open water, and there are some real-life lessons in her journey about grit and trusting that you can find a way and starting something before you know all the answers. And I got a lot from this chat, not least some very important sports nutrition tips, which I'm not going to spoil for you now. And Fiona's got a huge challenge coming up, so please follow her on social media. And if you want to really experience her paddle trip, then please buy and read her book, Ignore the Fear, and all links are in the show notes. So I hope that you enjoy this really fun chat with the very impressive Fiona Quinn. Hi Fiona, welcome to SUP FM. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's an absolute treat to have you on. And we're going to talk today about your incredible paddleboard journey from Land's End to John O'Groats, which is featured in your fantastic book, Ignore the Fear, which I've been very much enjoying. First of all, we'd like to talk a, a little bit about your background behind that trip. Have you have you always been an adventurous person? No, not really. I mean, I guess as a child, when I was really young, I grew up in a village um, and I'd kind of gonna go and roam around the village with my brother. But then um, I think I was about 10, we moved to a larger town and I kind of stopped being adventurous, really. I stopped getting outside. My parents weren't adventurous. And, it, you know, I just sort of became like a normal teenager, I guess. And from there, fell into university and then kind of into jobs and stuff. And I never really got outside that much. It wasn't until I think I was about 28. That's when I really started getting into adventure. And it started when I got a bike, actually, on the cycle to work scheme. My boyfriend at the time was really into cycling. And so I got a bike myself and we started just exploring locally and then going slightly further afield. Um, we did London to Brighton, London to Cambridge, kind of big bike rides together. And it was kind of cycling was really the big thing that got me into the outdoors and into adventure. Yeah. And that can be a challenge. That's at London to Brighton. It's Ditchling Beacon, isn't it? That's a bit of a climb. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had absolutely no kind of visions of conquering Ditchling Beacon. I was well aware of how tough that would be. And actually that first sort of big bike ride, London to Brighton, I didn't train at all for that. Um, I think I only got my bike maybe four months before then. Um, so that was kind of, I guess, where my sort of love of diving into things that I'm not experienced at began. And it's often the case with these big adventures, you get your fitness and so on, on the road. Certainly that, that's been the case with me with, with my cycling. So tell me a little bit about your rediscovery of adventure, because as you said, you went to university, you did 
did the work thing. And obviously um, you had your cycling, but you also got into micro adventures as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. It was about the same time that I got the bike that I sort of started to discover the adventure scene in London, really, and kind of adventurers um, like John Conway and Al Humphreys. Um, and so sort of looking at what they were doing, kind of these smaller things, just going and sleeping out for one night under the stars, that really kind of appealed, like, oh, I wonder if I could do that. That sounds kind of easy, just for one night I want, I could probably do it. Um, so I took some friends and we went and slept on a hill down in Kent and it was the worst night's sleep I'd ever had, but I absolutely loved it. Just being outside under the stars, um, doing something that's completely different and a bit weird when you think about it, because why on earth would you sleep in a field next to a bush when you could sleep in your bed? Um, but I think it was really from that point that I was kind of a bit addicted, really. And then just tell me how that developed, because reading the book, it seems to have gradually ramped up and up and up before you started your Land's End to John O'Groats type challenges. Um, So you you did an expedition where you did a triathlon down the River Cam, didn't you? I did, yeah. So I guess I'd sort of done a few one night sort of sleeping out under the stars and I wanted to do something a bit bigger that involved my bike, but also kind of threw in some other sports in there as well. So I figured walking's pretty easy. I could probably do that quite far. Um, And then I'd also fairly recently discovered paddleboarding. And so I thought I would kind of make a triathlon that worked for me. Um, So I decided to go along the River Cam from source to sea, which is about 70 miles in all. Um, So I did the full length of the river three times, uh, once with each sport. And it was just, it wasn't in one go. It was just kind of as and when I had time between my job, sort of weekends here and there. Um, so it probably took a couple of months in all to, to complete. But it was really on that adventure that I realized that I love the, the independence of going out on my own. It was the walking element of that was the first time really that I'd been out in nature and, and exploring kind of on my own with no friends by my side. And it felt ridiculous to begin with. And then I realized that nobody cares that I'm out there. And it was so freeing and then kind of empowering to just go and do it on my own terms and kind of come up with these crazy ideas and see what I can accomplish. So after completing that, clearly there was a burning need to look at more challenges and you got on the whole land's end to to John O'Groats thing. So I think, first of all, you started, you did it by bike and then you had a bit of a a weather related issue in Scotland, which I think we can all identify with. And you went back and did that cycling later, but you also walked it. So tell us how that whole focus on land's end, John O'Groats started. Yeah, so it was after the the River Cam Triathlon. Um, So that sort of autumn, I was really keen to do another adventure. I I liked exploring locally around where I was along the river, but I wanted to see more of Britain. You know, obviously this is the country that I call home, but I didn't really know it that well. So I was looking for an adventure that would be fairly easy to plan. Um, And Lanz and John O'Groats just kind of really stood out as the obvious classic British adventure to really discover you know the length of Britain um and as you say the the cycling was was the first way that I did it um I'd made 800 miles until I got caught out by a storm um in the Cairngorms and so I didn't quite make it that first attempt but as you say I went back and cycled it again um and that was really when I got the bug for big adventures I, I even though I hadn't made it um I was about 200 miles short that first time I just loved the fact that I just cycled 800 miles when before all I'd done in one go was 80. And that kind of 
possibility of, of self-propelled transport across the country really I got the bug for it I think um and so I figured what other way could I explore Britain as there's, there's still loads that I hadn't seen of Britain um and so I figured walking was kind of the obvious next step as it were um you know what you have to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other and eventually I'll get there and to be fair like the walking one I think was the toughest of all three to be honest um mentally and physically uh, I didn't train for any of these adventures. I just kind of went and figured that, you know, that it's such a long adventure that I'll get fit along the way. But actually, I think that slightly um, was a downside on the walk. Uh, about 500 miles in, I got to the Lake District and I ended up getting acute tendonitis. So incredibly painful, um, as I'm sure many people have experienced. And I had to have a week off on crutches. And then I kept going and then I got trench foot. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really tough adventure, that one. So what was the tendonitis down to? Is that the wrong footwear or, or just? Probably a combination of, yeah, of the wrong footwear. I was wearing kind of hiking boots, um, just cause I figured that's probably what I should wear. Like I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but most of the walking I was doing was on, on roads really, or pavements and kind of quite hard compacted trails. So actually, um, trainers would have been absolutely fine. They'd been much lighter. But also, I guess the fact that I didn't train just meant that my body was kind of going, no, this is <laughs> this is a little bit too much for us. And just in terms of the sites, because I've done uh, John O'Groats to Land's End and admittedly I did mine at double speed. So I didn't get to raise my head and look at much of it. But it's an absolutely fantastic way of seeing Great Britain. I mean, coming up Glencoe and through the lakes. I mean, it's absolutely spectacular. What, what were your highlights? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Scotland really is just incredible. And there's some amazing roads in Scotland. There's one particular one between um, Leg and Tongue, and it's like the smoothest tarmac you'll find anywhere. And there's like two cars an hour. And it was, yeah, when I went through there, it was a beautiful sunny day and a tailwind. And, you know, it's just dreamy cycling. Um, yeah, so there's there's so many places, really. And even kind of down south, you know, down in Cornwall, where it's kind of smaller country lanes and sort of lots of short, short sharp hills. Um, even then, like, it's just, I think being out on your bike is such an amazing way to explore. It's so, um, what's the word? I can't think of the word. It's just like, you, you know, you just pack everything on your bike. You're not physically carrying anything on you. And it's just, yeah, really freeing. And it's it's wonderful. And the great thing about cycling is that you're going at pretty much the right pace to make the landscape change quick enough. Mm. Um, so you're still outside in the exterior, you get all the smells and really feel like you're experiencing the, the landscape. So moving on to the third of your triathlon um, series here. So as you say, it's I think the classic distance they say is about 860 miles, isn't it? I think that's what's on the, the signpost at Land's End. Yeah, but, like but the thing that makes your third step so staggering is the fact that you've got a very long standing fear of water and particularly open water. Could you just explain a little bit about how that fear first developed? Yeah, so I think I was about maybe six or so. Um, I was on a holiday with my family and I couldn't swim yet. We were in a swimming pool. Um, my mum was at the end of this this water slide and I would kind of go down the slide and my brother would go down. My mum would catch me at the end of the slide and I thought that she was still at the end of the slide. So I went back up for another go and she wasn't there. 
So when I came off the slide, I just plunged into the water. Um, and I actually ended up saving myself. The one lifeguard saw me, but they weren't close enough. And the other one that was just sort of a couple of meters behind me didn't see that I was, you know, effectively drowning. Um, so I had to kind of splash and get to get to the edge of the pool, pull myself out, by which time my parents had rushed over and um, realized what was going on. So it's kind of from there that I, I've not really been scared of pools because I know that I can save myself in a swimming pool. But um, yeah, just kind of deep open water just really scares me an awful lot. Like I don't know if I could save myself if something went wrong out there. And I think that's, well, that's certainly where it all began. And it's it's just kind of persisted from there, really. And, and do you still have that fear? Did that improve at all during your paddle? Your your sort of I, mean, I hesitate to say the word immersion, but I guess <laughs> that's a description of it in the whole paddleboard experience. Um, no, <laughs> I think it's it definitely hasn't helped. Um, I think you know there's some some things that happened on the paddle um, that maybe made it worse. Mm. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about those in a sec. So just take us back to to the start of it. So the the model was that you absolutely fixed on doing this, and you basically did a huge amount of work in order to put all the places in. A, all the pieces in place to actually set out on this and you your route was obviously from land's end then across the east coast of ireland and then back up to the highlands of west western highlands and then up through the caledonian canal and up to john o'groat so those of you at home listening to this and following this in a map that was the route that was taken so not an easy route at all but in order to do it you had to set things up and there was a huge amount of logistical arrangements you needed to make including buying a boat in order to to support you on that journey and and that that uh, boat has become well in my mind anyway you know the seventh crew member to carry <laughs> in itself um, just tell us a bit about how you put all the pieces together in order to d- do that adventure yeah so it was it was an as you said an absolutely logistical kind of nightmare to one degree like there was I really needed crew like there's because I was so scared and so inexperienced um I had to have a support boat I kind of looked into the finances of it and if I was to rent a boat, it would have been crazy expensive. And I didn't know how long the paddle was going to take. So the sort of the best financial option was to buy a boat. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky that I was managed to get a loan to do that. Um, so I, I, I didn't know anything about boats. Um, I had to try and find a suitable one to figure out what a suitable one looked like um, and then buy it in time. Uh, I also had to find crew for that boat. So I tried to find um, a yacht master skipper. So I wanted someone who was as qualified as can be, because obviously I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, And then I wanted to have a photographer just to kind of record it because it's kind of difficult to film yourself while you're paddleboarding. Um, And yeah, and then later on, I kind of got other bits of um, crew to come and help me as well. Some deckhands, which were amazing. Uh, and And also, you know, just trying to get, some kit sponsors on board to kind of help out a little bit with the finances um was was super tough as well you know like who am I like I'm not you know a professional paddleboarder I'm it's a bit of a crazy idea someone who's scared of the sea is gonna go and paddleboard the length of Britain at that point no one had ever attempted it before um so it was quite a quite a feat um I think in in just getting to the start line um but also kind of the 
I guess the emotional and the mental kind of side of it as well as the logistics is kind of super tough in terms of um you know just believing that I can get there like I and actually when I started doing the paddleboarding once I left Land's End I hadn't bought a boat yet I still didn't have a boat I didn't have a skipper either all I had with me was my photographer um and so I sort of started without everything I needed and I kind of just had to believe that it would come together as I kept pushing forwards and amazingly it did um in the next sort of two weeks we had some bad weather and during that time I managed to buy a boat and um my photographer ended up skippering the yacht for me um so that was incredibly lucky uh I couldn't have done it without Liam he was amazing um so yeah it was, a, it was enormous amounts of, of organization that went into it mm, and that continues all the way through and as you say Liam and Shogun the boat were both the sort of ever presence other than yourself obviously um all the way through and the, the great thing about the book is it, it shows that ignoring the fear, not necessarily knowing the answers to all of the questions when you set out, but just having faith that you're going to work them out is an incredibly effective way. And, and basically, you stuck to that all the way through. There were so many challenges, and particularly the logistics, which is kind of the less glamorous bit, I guess, of, of any expedition. You were constantly readjusting and changing things all the way up to John O'Groats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of everything that from the weather that I wasn't expecting, you know, I thought maybe there'd be a couple of bad weather days each week, but I'd generally be able to make lots of progress each week. And that actually wasn't the case. We often had two weeks of solid bad weather. So we would find ourselves stranded in places and we we're like trying to figure out ways that we could still make progress. Um, and also then sort of later in the expedition, Liam had a family holiday that was pre-booked. So he left and I had to try and find other skippers to come and help. Um, so yeah, lo- lots of things to kind of to deal with along the way, which which I think is is as difficult as that is. I think it's also kind of a fun part of an expedition. I quite mm. like that that element of having to deal with things as they come up. Did did you find that logistical focus because you basically managed the the whole thing all the way through? Did you find that that helped to maybe offset some of the fear, or did that just sort of add to it? Um, I think. I think it probably helped a bit like I I'm quite like to have a plan and I quite like to be in control of stuff that's happening to me or around me and so therefore if someone else was organizing it I think I would feel much less secure and safe when I was out on the water um so that definitely helped I think and also when I was organizing sort of people to come and skipper and help out and stuff there's certainly an element of um I guess social pressure to not look like I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> So that kind of helped me to kind of, I guess, uh, put the fear to the back of my mind and just kind of, you know, put a smile on my face and, and look like I know what I was doing when I was on the paddleboard. And, and I think that definitely helped a little bit in terms of overcoming the fear. And how experienced a paddleboarder were you when you started? Um, how much time have you spent out on the sea? Yeah, so not much, really. So the very first time I went paddleboarding um, was... I think maybe like six or seven years before I set out on the expedition. Um, And so I was on on the sea then for for less than an hour. And then just before the expedition, um, I uh, had a a sort of vague training session with someone I knew. Um, So we were out for 10 minutes and then I fell off my board. And that was the first time I'd ever fallen off a board. Um, And then I think I had another 10 minutes 
session on the sea. So probably an hour in total before I before I left Land's End. Wow, that's incredible. And when you when you started, so Land's End is notorious, you know, for overfalls. You know, you've got the prevailing southwesterly splitting at at Land's End. It is a, a perilous place to to paddle for even an experienced paddleboarder, sort of knowing everything about tides and flow and so on. When you started, how, how tell us about that experience? Was it? I mean, tell me at least it was decent weather. <laughs> so actually, it was. Um, so I think it was the twentieth or twenty first of April, twenty eighteen, and that was the hottest April day in seventy years. So in one respect, it was great that it wasn't raining and super cold, but um, that heat. Like I, so I started at the Lands End sign, and I carried my board and an inflatable board down a mile down the coast, down to Senen Cove which is the nearest launch point. Um, and I think that hour with my board took it out of me way more than I expected it to because of the heat. And then once I finally got onto the water, we were expecting kind of low winds, less than 10 miles an hour. And they were actually gusting up to 20 because I think because of the heat. Um, so it was a lot more difficult than I'd expected. And actually, the, my plan initially was to, to paddle down to the sign to be in line with the sign on the water and then turn around and start heading north. And I thought that it's just obviously one mile back and I thought that wouldn't take me very long, but it took me, I think, twice as long as I expected. And it was so difficult fighting that wind. It was, um, yeah, it was, day one was a lot harder than I expected. Wow. And then you, you moved on um, along the coast. It must have been absolutely beautiful going down that North Cornwall and North Devon coast. Yeah, it was amazing to sort of see an area of Britain I guess I know maybe slightly better than other places just because I've kind of gone down to a holiday in in Cornwall when I was younger and then also sort of hang cycled and walked along it too so it was nice to see it from a different perspective and you know there's so many great beaches down there and then also particularly when we went over to Lundy Island like Lundy Island's incredible if, if people haven't been there I highly recommend going I mean we actually started paddling over um sort of in the afternoon so when I um, jumped on the support boat after that that day's paddling, we kind of anchored off the island at night. So we didn't really, we couldn't see the surrounding island. We woke up in the morning, it was just glassy water, gorgeous warm sunshine. And it was like we'd woken up on a desert island. It was amazing. Yeah, Lundy is absolutely spectacular. All of that coast is is so, so unspoiled. So... <sighs> I guess the next sort of really big obstacle was was crossing the Irish Sea. And obviously you had to do that twice. Just tell me about your experiences of doing that. Yeah, so um, so the first crossing um, was from St David's Head over to Rosslare. And that was, I think, about 40 miles in all. Um, and obviously it's the Irish Sea. So it's it can be incredibly changeable. You know, it's a long way if you're out there and suddenly a storm kind of rolls in, even if you're on a boat, yet alone on a paddleboard. Um, so we waited for two weeks for good weather. And initially, like I hadn't in my mind, I'd not really seen it as being any anything different than the rest of the paddling. Um, I would just paddle for a bit longer that day was kind of how I'd looked at it in my mind. Um, but then before I, I set off, um, one of my sponsors read Paddle Co., um, they were looking for some PR around it. And one of the, the ladies I was speaking to said that, did you know, Fiona, there are, I think it's something like 12 species of whale and 30 species of shark or the other way around, something like that. Um, and I was like, oh, thanks for telling me that right now. And then it was sort of all of a sudden, this kind of emotion came up of being super scared of being out there. Um, 
And the day before I set off to paddle across the Irish Sea, we were paddling just up to St. David's Head, getting to the furthest point we could before we'd be ready to set off. And the, it was kind of super windy that day. And the conditions weren't, you know, it wasn't super um, big swell. It wasn't massively choppy, probably for an experienced paddleboarder. But obviously, even though I've paddled that far to that point, I'm st- I still feel really inexperienced. I'm still really scared. Um, and it was then that we kind of had these conditions that I refer to as peakiness, um, which is where it's very specific, whether it's the sort of wind and, and the um, short, sharp chop is coming side onto the board. That just is the worst for me. I just really feel like it's going to throw me off my board. Um, and so I actually ended that paddle the day before I set off um, across the Irish Sea, like crying as I got on the boat. I was just really scared um, and it just really freaked me out. So that wasn't a great way <laughs> to kind of um, leave Wales, really. But actually, the next day, um, you know, the wind had completely died down and, and it was basically glassy the whole way across the Irish Sea. Like, we were incredibly lucky with the weather. Um, it was super foggy, but other than that, like, it was just a dream to paddle over. And then about three quarters of the way over, um, I think maybe like sort of 10 hours in or so, um these dolphins just came out of nowhere and started paddling or uh, swimming all around my my board and the boat and it was just kind of like a, a nice welcome to Ireland um which was amazing so yeah the the Irish Sea the first crossing was um yeah it was it was really actually just sort of settled my nerves a bit I think and once I got over to Ireland the weather was it was quite different to it to what it is um on the west coast uh of, of you know Cornwall um it was much more sheltered and the, the tide is much stronger. So it's quite quick to go up that coast, which was quite nice. Um, so, yeah, so it was good. I, I liked going over to Ireland. And those dolphins, I bet, give you a lift. Absolutely. Yeah, they're just magical. Like dolphins are just so friendly. And, you know, I've just never once worried that they were going to knock me off my board, even though they would come super close within like a foot of my board and they kind of look at me through the water and, it was just, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the cover of your book, is that, um, where, where is that taken? Because that's a great shot. That is in the Bristol Channel. So yeah, so that- crossing over from Lundy over to Wales. So, so you made your way up the Irish coastline and then before you knew it, it was time to, uh, to travel back. And I guess that there were some pretty big challenges st- still ahead. Tell me about that, that crossing back over to Scotland. Yeah, so it actually... Um, been stuck uh, in Northern Ireland for about two weeks. We'd had some more bad weather holding us there. Um, and it's a much shorter crossing over from Northern Ireland over to Scotland. It's only about 10 miles. Uh, but so we had to wait for a while to go back over. And then once we managed to, um, to set off, I ended up actually paddling. I think it was the first time I paddled through the night. Um, so for this section, this is where Liam had left me. So my photographer comes skipper was away sunning himself on a holiday and I managed to find um, a yacht master skipper who actually also came for the first Irish Sea crossing. So he came for both of those. Um, so it was great to have him and his experience and he grew up really near where I was paddling. So he had loads of local knowledge. Um, so we paddled over um, over the night and we got over to uh, the Mull of Kintyre and then kind of came up the coast up that way in towards um, Oban. And yeah, that's kind of when things started to get a little bit tricky. <laughs> mm, a little bit hairy. But before we talk a, a 
about that. How was it paddling through the night? I've done, I've done some dark water paddling. It, it can be a di- bit disorientating, particularly if there's a few waves. How did you find that overnight paddling? Yeah, I think um, it was definitely difficult to maintain balance in any kind of chop, I think, because you obviously don't have that visual kind of cues to help you balance. Um, so if it felt a bit choppy, I was often on my knees, but I think sort of that was only for a couple of hours and then I managed to stand for it uh, for most of, most of the crossing. But it was actually really interesting because it was the first time that I'd ever got to see the moon set which I guess is something that most people don't see because you're usually asleep then. Um, so that was really interesting. And also the sun never actually left. Um, like there was always just sort of uh, a nice orange glow on the horizon all the way throughout the night. Um, so that definitely helped. And I think actually with it being dark, I kind of felt less scared, weirdly, because mm-hmm. I couldn't see the sea. Yeah, um, see so, that? Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, it sounds incredibly ethereal and particularly at that time of the year where you were. Yeah, I totally I totally get that the sun wouldn't disappear fully. So you're on the west coast of Scotland and you're paddling on your own and you're totally aware that the world's third largest whirlpool in a place called Corrie Vecken is uh, not that far away. Just tell us about that day and your experience around that particular whirlpool because it sounds absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. <laughs> it was definitely the scariest point of the whole trip. So um, so at this point, uh, we are trying to go as quickly as possible. Like, I think it's really interesting in terms of adventure in general and like why we adventure and also thinking about other people's influence on our adventure. And I'd never been particularly bothered about going really quickly. Like I just wanted to go at my own pace. Obviously I'm really scared. So I just wanted to do it in a way that, that felt right for me. Um, but one of my sponsors was super keen for me to get there really, really quickly. So we decided that my support boat would leave me on the water. We were kind of in sort of between some of the West coast and islands. Um, so we didn't think I'd you know, be pulled out to sea or anything like that. Um, so my support boat left me, they went to, um, Crenan Harbour to refuel the support boat and do a crew change. So we were swapping over our deckhands. Um, and they were going to be like 90 minutes tops was the plan. So up that channel, there's kind of, um, Crenan Harbour is on the right hand side and then Korovakan is sort of round some islands to the left. And there's some little islands in the middle. And my skipper was like, just stay right at those islands and if you'll be pulled anywhere, then you'll be pulled sort of away from Corvac and then it'll be fine. So we kind of looked at the tides and everything, and it looked like there wasn't really going to be any tide at this point. So it should have been super easy. So they left me. Um, it was a gorgeous sunny day, not a breath of wind, glassy water. I felt pretty comfortable to begin with. Um, so I was paddling on. And I realized that I got to those islands in the middle of the channel a lot quicker than I expected. And initially, I was sort of like, oh, feeling really great, paddling really well today. And then I realised, obviously, it was because of the tide. Um, so then, like, a couple of minutes later, I sort of realised that I was being pulled between those islands in the middle and sort of in the direction of Corrivecan. Um, And all I could really do, like, I tried to cross that channel and, and get to the islands so I could beach myself, but I just couldn't fight the tide. So all I could do was sort of turn and face Crenan and hope that my crew would come out soon and get me. Um, so I 
I was just going to say, so then I text um, my skipper and sort of like, please hurry, the tide's really strong. Um, and sort of all the water around me was quite swirly and you know, my board was being sort of thrown around quite a lot. So I was starting to get a bit panicky. Um, and then my skipper phoned me and um, if you've ever had someone that you're supposed to be looking after and you've lost them because um, I wasn't where they expected me to be. And there's an increasing possibility that they're being pulled towards a deadly whirlpool. Then it's sort of not great when they answer the phone, just absolutely crying their heart out. I was like, where are you? I'm being pulled towards this whirlpool. I'm going to die. Like I was, I was losing it a little bit at that point. Um, but then like sort of 30 seconds into this phone call, I tried to describe what I could see, um, you know, trying to let him know where I was. But then all the water around me just shifted again, and this time into one big circle, and I was right in the middle of it. And I knew that different whirlpools developed at different tide states, um, and that they wouldn't get as big as Corrivecan, but I didn't know how big they would get. So I was just sort of had to concentrate on what was happening around me. So I hung up on my skipper, and I paddled like crazy to get to the edge of the swirling water. And then eventually I saw my support boat on the horizon that spotted me, and they came and scooped me out of the water. And... Um, yeah, that was quite an emotional <laughs> experience for both me and my skipper, I think. Um, but yeah, obviously I, I survived and I got out of there in one piece. And uh, it wasn't that close to Corrivecan, but, you know, if I hadn't been able to fight the tide, then it could have gone in a different direction. Um, yeah, that, that sounds absolutely horrendous. And of course, you, you don't just get Corrivecan in that particular whirlpool. Obviously, it's like that for a reason. So all of the paddle conditions in in that area you, you're gonna you're gonna have have some incredibly challenging conditions so sounds absolutely nightmarish and we'll link to a video of Cory Vecken in the show notes so that you can see exactly what it is that we're referring to so after Cory Vecken you'd recovered and done a bit of deep breathing I'm sure it probably took a bit more than that you started to get close to the locks and so on for the route through the Caledonian Canal and that part of your journey sounded pretty idyllic because when I did John O'Groats Land's End it was horizontal rain and high winds the whole way down but you had some lovely weather didn't you going through the Caledonian Canal we did. Yeah, we were incredibly lucky, actually. I think it was kind of just that year was just amazing weather. So sort of leading on from that April day that was the hottest in 70 years, I think the country in general was in this kind of just endless heat wave. And um, as we were going through the Caledonian Canal, it was just pretty still weather, um, you know, just gorgeously sunny. And actually it was it was almost to our detriment, to be honest, because some of the swing bridges um, were stuck because of the heat. So my support boat couldn't get through. So that delayed us by a couple of days. Um, but, you know, what an excuse to just sort of sit around next to the lock and enjoy the scenery. There's some lovely spots down there. And Loch Ness, um, I know that some people doing that route, either sort of east to west or, or west to east, sometimes do massive downwinders. There can be huge waves going through there. But how was Loch Ness? Yeah, it was. Um, it seemed to be at like dead on three pm. It sort of every day the the wind would kick in and it would kind of howl down there. Um, but it went in the morning. It was just yeah, pretty still, pretty nice. And then it did did definitely pick up towards the afternoon. And then through Inverness, and then you were in the, on the home straight. How was that coastline 
um, down there. So you go across, you go to Wick, don't you? But there's some lovely cliffs there and loads of wildlife. Yes, yeah, we had more dolphins along that coast, um, lots of seabirds. Um, actually, further before, just before that bit, we had some sea otters, which was amazing. So yeah, it was incredible sort of wildlife along the way. Um, and actually, even earlier on that, which I sort of forgot to mention, in in Ireland, we had loads of jellyfish, which was interesting. Mm. Um, I think they were saying they were having loads of blooms of jellyfish um, uh, that particular year. So that was it was great to see the wildlife all the way through. Um, and yeah, just kind of discover different bits of Britain. It was great. And um, before we get to John O'Groats, it's probably fair of me just to mention sports nutrition, because clearly we've talked a lot about um, the logistics of the whole thing. Um, cake played quite an important role in this journey, didn't it? Uh, particularly lemon drizzle cake, but were there any other sorts of cake involved? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm definitely fueled by cake. I think I'm not really, you know, I'm not an athlete. I haven't trained for any of these things. Like I'm, I'm not super into like calorie counting or knowing how many carbs I'm loading with or anything like that. So um, yeah, definitely fueled by cake and a, maybe a few too many beers on the days off. Um, mm-hmm. So as you say, lemon drizzle is my favourite. Um, so good research on that. Uh, but also like kind of any cake really, you know, like chocolate or whatever is, is always a good one. Yeah. Well, I always put it down to carb loading, which is actually a sports science term. So I think I think that's fair dues. And actually, uh, in some of my interviews with Canadian national paddlers, they've talked very much about butter tarts, which is the thing over in Canada. So I think uh, keeping it British cake is absolutely <laughs> the right thing. So we are on the, the closing stretch. You're you're covering a fantastic area of Scottish coastline. And finally, you come to John O'Groats. How did that feel when you finally made land there by that uh, famous sign? Yeah, it was um, It's kind of weird, actually. Like it was so when I sort of was coming around that sort of final corner in the last sort of mile or so. And you can see, obviously, see the sign from not the sign itself, but John O'Groats from a fair distance because there's a really bright sort of I think the hotels there. Um, and it was just odd to think that I'd paddled there from Land's End. Like it was almost surreal that this wasn't actually happening. Um, and also it was just wonderful to have my crew, you know, like Liam was back at this point. Um, and my deckhand Aileen had been with us for about a month. Um, so it was amazing. Like the, the experience of sharing this incredibly scary thing, um, for everyone at times, um together and and to have made it to the end was was really amazing um and yeah it was just as I say surreal um just weird to think that I'd paddled that far it really it really didn't feel like it had happened (laughs) amazing and having arrived you managed to tick off three world records so first you were the first woman to paddle the Irish Sea the first person to paddle uh, Le Jog on an inflatable and the first person to complete an end-to-end triathlon. So massive props for that, particularly the inflatable one. I mean, I'm I'm not a traditionalist. I paddle an inflatable most of the time, much to the disgust of most people I paddle with. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that does introduce a bit of additional complexity, doesn't it? Because it means that you're sitting much higher on the water and you're much more prone to being blown places. Yeah, I mean... I guess I chose an inflatable just because that's what I knew. Like I'd never really, I don't think I'd ever really paddled on a hardboard before. I was aware that, you know, hardboards are more efficient. Um, 
but I and also I guess because I was so scared and such an amateur that I knew that I'd certainly initially and before I paddled across the Irish Sea I was probably kneeling quite a lot um and then obviously sort of you know inflatables are slightly easier on the knees than hardboards um so yeah so it just kind of felt right for me really and I think that's kind of one of the things that I've learned sort of doing all these adventures is that there's probably a, a right way of doing it that some people might think um but really for me I think it's just find a way that suits you and, and be quite happy with that don't sort of do what you think you're supposed to do absolutely and one of the things that people often talk about is post expedition blues so you, you're paddling and you're adventuring and then you come to the end you managed to to deal with that by sailing all the way back down to your starting point or at least down to Bristol didn't you I did yeah so I wanted to take the boat back down south so that I could sell it um and it was really interesting actually so we we were heading south and um so Liam left us once we got down to Inverness and then um, my John, my sort of yacht master skipper from previously in the expedition, he came back and, and sailed us down. Um, and it was funny being on the boat for such a long time when obviously I'd, I'd been on my board for, the, for the, the northbound journey. And it was incredible how frustrating it was just being sat on a boat all day going not that much faster than I was when I was paddling. Um, and I think I had the better deal when we were going north. So... <laughs> What, what an amazing expedition. And, and again, coming back to the, the title of the book, Ignore the Fear, it, it, it's quite amazing how you adapted and, uh, as you progressed up. Certainly, I would imagine you, you got um, habituated to the feel of the ocean. Were there any other sort of insights or reflections that you learned from your journey? Um, I mean, I think... You know, obviously, ignore the fear is is the big one, but I guess that's you know, it's not necessarily from the beginning. It could be, um, you know, you you something happens along the way, and you're like suddenly start doubting yourself as to whether you can continue on an adventure. And I think just believing in yourself throughout, and that no matter what happens, you'll find a way through it. And and sometimes, like with my cycling adventure, that meant quitting. Like I just, I it was it was would have been silly to carry on when I was. Um, caught out by that storm in the Cairngorms on my bike because I would have got hypothermia and there's absolutely no point in you know risking your health for an adventure um so I think sort of believing yourself and that you can make decisions that are right for you is certainly something that I've kind of taken away from my adventures um but I think also sort of being an amateur is a great thing like don't feel bad about not knowing what you're doing like it's an amazing opportunity to learn so I didn't know anything about tides before I started um, planning the adventure. I also didn't know anything about boats. So I got to learn all about that. I got to learn how to skipper a boat. It was it was just, yeah, an amazing experience that um, I'm so glad I had. And, and I love just being, you know, an amateur and throwing myself into things. I think that's something that I, I really take out of the adventure. Well, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, we will obviously link to this in the show notes, but highly recommend it not least the fact that uh, if you do want to really immerse yourself into an adventure i don't think there's a better way of doing it than immersing yourself into a book because films and and a podcast we go through fairly quickly but you really get a sense in your book as uh, that you're actually experiencing it alongside you oh good i'm glad that comes through and I, I totally agree like i think there's and there's so many great adventure books out there that um really kind of go into that those depths that you as you say you just can't get through other media I think it's great to to read lots of adventure books I certainly find them inspiring 
Well, that brings us on rather nicely to your adventure book club, Fiona. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it started a couple of years ago, um, really just as a way to get me to read more adventure books and to have some accountability. Um, so we read a different adventure book every month and um, the the club is now free. So it's completely open. Anyone can just follow us on Instagram, um, Adventure Book Club, um, or they can uh, sign up to our newsletter. And we try to have like a huge range of different kinds of books, um, lots of different sports, um, but also perspectives on adventure, um, kind of looking at adventure mindset as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great way to kind of learn through other people's adventures and, and get inspired for your own ones, too. Well, we recommended your book in our own um, SUP book club. What uh, books would you recommend? Are there any particularly that have stood out for you? Oh, there's so many. Um, let me think. What's some really good ones? Um, so there's one. I'm really bad at remembering the titles of books. Um, there's one about free diving, um, which is about this guy called Nick. And um, tragically, he was the first person to die in competitive free diving. But it's an amazing book in terms of how a sport can be so unregulated and so dangerous. Um, and it was fascinating to learn about a sport that I would certainly never do. There's no way you'd get me to free dive. So um, I loved that book, which um, I think actually was called One Breath. So that was a really good one. Um, people like Sean Conway and Anna McNaff, they've written some great books as well, like on a whole different sort of range of sports. Um, and I think there's an increasing, luckily, there's an increasing number of women um, writing adventure books, which I think is really important to have that different perspective. And it's not all about being gnarly and, you know, doing really dangerous things. It's about kind of discovering yourself and what you're capable of. And I, I, I guess sort of similar to my perspective in terms of not being this kind of um, expert in, in something, but just having a go and, and not trying to race somebody else, but just doing it in your own way. I think that's quite an, an important story to share as well. And it's totally not about being gnarly. And um, I don't know whether you were following Jordan Wiley's adventures in, in 2020, but I had the honour of meeting him on the beach and uh, actually said thank you for holding up the end for blokes there because you know it's all about the Fiona Quinns and uh, I guess the Cal Majors doing these huge great long trips and and the blokes haven't done it at all <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah I mean it, it, there's so many female paddlers and so many inspirational female paddlers what do you think it is about paddle boarding that's um, that's really attracted so many so many adventurers and so many female competitors I guess paddleboarding is quite an easy sport to get into like it's I think it's much less technical maybe than something like um kayaking or or, or other kinds of water sports um and, it, and it's really accessible in terms of you, you know you can paddle inland as well as on the sea and I think there's lots of diverse ways of finding a way that you know suits you within paddleboarding which I think is really what makes it such a popular sport. And were you fed up with paddleboarding after flogging all the way up to, to John O'Groats or have you paddled since? Um, I have paddled a little bit since, I think only once on the sea. <laughs> like I really am still not a fan of the sea at all. Um, but yeah, certainly inland, I do I do love it. I mean, there's no, no other better way, I think, of being on the water other than a kind of still day on a paddleboard. It's just amazing. 
Definitely. And you've got a new challenge coming up, which I heard about recently, which is a, a serious, serious challenge. Tell us tell us about that. It is. Yeah, I guess it's along the, the same lines of I have no idea what I'm doing, so I'm just going to throw myself into this. Um, so, so the next one is a running adventure. And I've never been a runner. Um, I Before I started training in this January, I'd only ever run five miles in one go. So I figured it would be a good idea to um, run the Pennine Way. So it's 260 miles um, and I'm going to do it nonstop this wow. summer. So I'm sort of got, you know, roughly six, seven months training um, and then just have a crack and see whether I can get to the end. And I think it's sort of, I guess, in a similar vein to the adventures in the past and that it will be very much a kind of mind over matter to some degree. Um, but obviously the big difference is I have to train for this one, which is an adventure in itself. That is a hell of a challenge. I mean, I, I'm not a natural runner's shape. I was a um, rugby player for many years, so I'm not generally built for endurance sports, but I've done a, a couple of marathons. And uh, yeah, there's definitely a ergonomic way to do it. There's a, a book called Chi Running by a chap called uh, Danny Dreyer, who, which I'd highly recommend. And uh, he really gets you into the ergonomics of, of running. And, and since I followed uh, his guidelines, I remained injury free, which is which was quite something. So uh, but that is quite a colossal challenge. And um, it's not flat either. No, I think it's something like um, 40,000 foot of elevation over the 260 miles. So it's it's pretty hilly. <laughs> well, best of luck with that, Fiona. Thanks so much for joining us on SUPFM. It's been brilliant to have you on. The Ignore the Fear book is available at all good booksellers. And obviously, as I've mentioned, was linked to it in the show notes. Where else can we find out about you? Um, so I'm on all sort of main social media channels, um, just at Fiona L. Quinn. And that's my website as well, at FionaLQuinn.com. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully I'll see you on the water at some point, probably not on the sea. No. <laughs> find a lake somewhere. Absolutely. That'd be brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that chat with Fiona Quinn as much as I did. Please check out the show notes for the links, including the one to her book, Ignore the Fear, and her adventure, Book Club. And of course, we wish her all the very best for her run. If you haven't already listened, then check out our SUP FM Book Club episode, where me and Nick talk about Fiona's book and give some other great recommendations if you're off the water and have a SUP itch that you simply can't scratch. The more people who listen, the more aloha we can spread. So please tell your friends, tag us on Facebook, Instagram, or your favourite channel. And if you're new to the sport, then don't miss out on our SUP safety course, which is available in the link in our show notes. Mahalo and see you next week, where we've got an interview with a guest who wrote a New York Times best-selling book about water and who has really added to my paddle experience in a really practical way. Take care. Thank you for listening to Sup FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.